So remember, Deuteronomy is made up of three speeches. The first speech is Moses giving the covenant history. So from their exodus to coming at Mount Sinai, receiving the law, the tabernacle, and the sacrificial system, he gives a review of their history. And the main point of that first speech and the review of their history is to display how awesome, how great, how faithful he is as their suzerain king. And so the idea is that he's recounting their past to show that they have been the unfaithful ones, that they're the ones who are more likely to violate a covenant rather than him. And so he is the great God that is unlike any other God. And as Moses says, who else heard your cries? Who else came and saved you? Who else made you his chosen people? Who else made a covenant with you? No one has. And so God is faithful. And so that is the history to show two things. First, why they would want to be in a covenant with this God compared to any other God. Why this covenant is superior and this God is superior to all others. Therefore, they should want to be in this covenant because he first loved them which is going to set it up for that idea that their obedience should be a response of love, not because I have to. The second thing that it's doing when he goes through that history is to show them why they need covenant laws, because they're the ones that keep disobeying. And so he needs to give them laws in order to keep them faithful to the covenant because he can't trust them. And that was the whole point. And every covenant that was ever made by any king in the ancient world, that's what they would do. They would go through and show why there has to be laws. And so that first speech is how great God is so that they know that he is the best God to have a covenant with and that then that would inspire them to say, I'm going to obey out of love, not because I have to. And then to also show why they need laws. That brings us to the second speech. The second speech is what we've been going through for a long period of time, and that is all the laws of the covenant and what God expects of them. Now remember, for God, this isn't just rules. These are rules based on loving God and loving others. And so once you unpack them, they make logical sense because the idea is that we wouldn't want anybody to do these things or not do these things to us because that would be unloving. And so the entire laws are mapped out in this. This is what it means to love God, and this is what it means to love each other from major things like murder and kidnapping and rape all the way down to minute little details of how you structure property and animals and do all that kind of stuff, and very specific to very general. So he's gone through all that. Now we come to the third speech. The third speech is the final speech. And in this third speech, he's now going to go through the cursings and the blessings. And he's going to reiterate the conditions of the covenant. And so basically the idea is, this is what's going to happen to you if you do not disobey, and this is what's going to happen to you if you obey. And that's important. Because if you've ever learned anything about parenting, one of the first things they'll tell you in disciplining is make sure that the rules are clearly stated and the consequences for the rules are clearly stated and that you consistently enforce the rules and deal with that. And so that's exactly what God does. And from the very, 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 very beginning, when we are first introduced to Yahweh in Genesis, 
God clearly says, all these trees you may eat, but you may not eat from this tree. And if you eat from this tree, then you will die. And so he clearly states the requirements, and he clearly states the consequences of what will happen. And so that's exactly what he's doing here. He's making it very clear. There is no, oh, you didn't tell us this would happen. Yes, he did. He's going to go through that. Now, the curses are going to be far longer than the blessings. And a couple of reasons this is, is because, one, blessings tend to be more general. Life is good kind of a sense. Consequences tend to be more targeted, more specific. But really, it's because we respond to consequences more and negative consequences than positive consequences. And I think I mentioned this a while ago, but our brains actually, I don't, I would say there's something wrong with us, but our brains actually respond more to negativeness. We, this is why most media and the news have lots of negative stuff, because when things are positive and cheery, then we don't typically tune in. Think about it. I mean, the positive things are happening, you typically miss it. Horrible things are happening, people pull out their phones and they start recording things. Well, there's something seriously wrong with us, and it's called the fall. And we are more attuned to negativeness and consequences. And I do firmly believe that rewards and encouragement is a much better positive reinforcement for children and that kind of stuff. But the reality of studies shows that it takes like a hundred encouragements to counteract just one negative thing. And so the reality is God is giving us these consequences because that's what we typically, that's typically what motivates us more. Now the reality is, remember, God has been saying this thing about a circumcised heart. The idea is that eventually he wants us to get to a point where we're such in a deep relationship with him that consequences is not what motivates us to obey him. I mean, this is why we all became Christians. We became Christians because we didn't want to go to hell, because we didn't want the crappy life that we had, or the the emptiness, or whatever it was in your life that drove you. Typically, it was something negative in your life that you were experiencing. You didn't want that anymore, and that's what motivated you. But the idea is, as the Holy Spirit works in you, then you start obeying and seeking a relationship with God less because you're afraid of being punished, and more because you're just so in love with this God. But without the Holy Spirit, the only thing he has to motivate us is consequences. And you know that. We are not born with naturally altruistic, loving people. We are born as selfish. And the only thing that motivates people is consequences. Speeding tickets, going to jail, fines, that kind of stuff. The only thing that can motivate you outside of that is if something's changing in your heart. And right now, they don't have a heart change. And so all they have are these consequences. And that's what God has. And that's really important for you to understand. This is why even with your children at a very, very young age, you're motivating them mostly through punishments, consequences. And the hope is that they get older and you can start logically reasoning with them and they can start seeing long-term consequences. And as their heart begins to fall in love with you and God, that there becomes a greater desire just to do it because they care about you. But that's a, that's a maturity. That's a maturity. 
And so this is what God starts with. These are immature people who have an uncircumcised heart and the infancy of their adoption. And all God has right now is consequences to motivate them. And this is going to be the setup for the coming of Christ. Because Christ and the Holy Spirit is the only thing that can change this motivation in us. The only thing that can change this. But the other thing you need to remember is that even though the blessings are a smaller section compared to the curses, unlike all the other covenants, there actually are blessings. Very rarely are there any covenants in the ancient world that actually gave the blessings. And so that sense shows that that's, God's character is way drastically different. And so the fact that he's even giving them blessings is amazing. And basically what the blessings are, or the curses are, they're a reversal of the blessings. They're a reversal of the blessings. And so that's what we're going to go through today in this second speech. So we are in chapter 27, verse 1. Then Moses and the elders of Israel commanded the people, Pay attention to all the commandments I am giving you today. When you cross the Jordan River to the land of Yahweh your God is giving you, you must erect great stones and cover them with plaster. Then you must inscribe on them all the words of the law when you cross over so that you may enter the land Yahweh your God is giving you, a land flowing with milk and honey, just as Yahweh the God of your ancestors said to you. So when you cross to the Jordan, the Jordan, you must erect on Mount Ebal these stones about which I am commanding you today. You must cover them with plaster. And you must build an altar there to Yahweh your God, an altar there stones. Do not use an iron tool on them, and you must build the altar to Yahweh your God with the whole stones and offer burnt offerings on it to Yahweh your God. Also you must offer fellowship offerings and eat them there, rejoicing before Yahweh your God, and you must inscribe on the stones all the words of this law, making them clear. So God commands them when they get into the Israel, they cross, well, it's not Israel yet, it's Canaan. When they cross the Jordan River into Canaan, they're to go to central Canaan. And in central Canaan, there's a hill by the name of Mount Abal. And they're to erect these stone um, pillars, cover them in plaster, and carve the laws of God on them. And the implication is at least the Ten Commandments. We don't know how much more in addition to the Ten Commandments are required to carve, but at least those. So these are giant stones that would stand up as and be the Ten Commandments in the center of Israel. And then they're to build an altar and sacrifice to God. And basically what they're doing is they've, they've just finished making it, renewing their covenant with God in chapter 26. But now they're going into the land and making a covenant with God in the land. Because remember, way back in Genesis, the land, God, and humans are all intricately connected to each other. And so they're to make this covenant there with the land and with God because God will then give them a land flowing with milk and honey if they do this. And as mentioned earlier, in the book of Exodus, these stones are to be untouched by human hands as far as carving tools go because they're not allowed to fashion the altar in their own image through their own works because the altar is supposed to be an altar that atones for their sins and that altar is supposed to be built by God. So whatever state God left the stones in, that's what's supposed to be the altar, not what God, what they have crafted it as. Verse 9, Then Moses and the Levitical priests spoke to all of Israel. Be quiet and pay attention, Israel. Today you become the people, Yahweh your God. You must obey him and keep his commands and statutes that I am giving you today. Moreover, Moses commanded the people that day, 
The following tribes will stand to bless the people on Mount Gerizim when you cross the Jordan. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these other tribes must stand for the curse on Mount Abal, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. So we talked about this early in Deuteronomy, but earlier in Deuteronomy, Moses also said when you get there, then you're to stand on one hill and give all the blessings, and then on the other hill you're to give all the cursings. And so he tells them to get on Mount Gerizim, and Mount Gerizim and Ebal face each other. And so on Mount Gerizim, the, the children of Leah and Rachel minus Reuben and Zebulon. So six tribes on one and six on the other, and the Levites would be in the middle. So all the children of Rachel and Leah, not including Reuben and Zebulon. Reuben most likely because he tried to steal headship from his dad. Zebulon was the last born. So they are on one hill. Then on the other hill, the hill of cursing, Mount Ebal, is to be the children of the two maidservants, Bilhah and Zilphah, and then Reuben and Zebulon. So six on each side. So Mount Gerizim is the hill of blessings, and then Mount Ebal is the hill of cursing, and the stone pillars with the Ten Commandments carved into them. So it's interesting that the law is connected to the cursings. And that's exactly the point that God, Moses, uh, Paul is going to make. When Paul writes his letters, he says, the law brought death. It did not bring life. And so the hill of blessing does not have the law because the law cannot bring life. Because we can't obey the law. Only Christ can bring life. And so they're to stand up there. And so what they're going to do is these six tribes on the hill of blessing, Mount Gerizim, they're going to pronounce all the blessings we're going to read through right now. They're going, to, they're going to say them out loud. And then they're going to be followed by the cursings by the other six tribes on Mount Ebal. And they're going to say it out loud. This is something we're not used to as Americans. But there is, there is something metaphysical and something powerful about some kind of a benediction or a blessing being said out loud. I know we don't, like we see Catholics doing blessings and we're like, oh my gosh, don't they know that doesn't mean anything at the heart of the people, da, 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 da. But the reality is, even in numbers, the, the, the doxology that some churches sing, if you've been in those churches, that comes from numbers. And God says, this is the benediction that the priests are pronounced over the people. And over and over and again, you see like Isaac and Abraham pronouncing blessings over people. Noah pronounces a curse over his son, and God like says, that's going to happen now. There's, there's a power to that. And I don't fully understand it because we're, I'm an American too, and I'm part of this culture, but here's the best understanding I can kind of give to it. There's a lot of things that go on up here. And you know, you, you make these commitments up here but they're just in your thought life. So many thoughts go through your head all the time. And we don't really put into action a lot of things that we, oh, I would really like to read my Bible more. Da, 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 da. And these things just don't happen because they're up here. Or there's a lot of things that are up here and then you speak them out loud and you're like, oh, that wasn't right. It sounded a lot better in here than it did coming out and that kind of stuff. And there's just something to speaking something out loud. 
And, and there is something to the fact that, I mean, Christ in the Bible is called the Word. And there's something to verbalizing something out loud that gives it power. And, and when, especially when other people hear it, that gives it power. Because then there's an accountability there. And so here's the thing. Teachers especially know this, that the more senses you can invoke in learning, the more likely it's to stay with you. So handwriting things out is why I don't let my students type, because studies have shown that typing just is like, it's just like brain turned off. But handwriting things is like really, truly, like I type things, because eventually you have to type things. But in that note-taking process, you got to do it by hand, if you really want to remember it. And so there's something to how the Jews in the beginning would write something and they would be speaking it loud as they're reading it. And that's three senses right there, that touch, that speaking, and then that visual thing. And if only you could taste the words and smell them. So the reality is the more senses you invoke, the more powerful that thing becomes, the more it's stamping upon you. You've got three stamps now happening on you. And so... There's something to standing up on a hill and speaking it out loud. And when you're yelling out loud, there's a more of a commitment there. And you know this when kids are like, nah, 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 nah. that's not as powerful as they're like confidently like saying it out loud. And so you're saying out loud, you're speaking it confidently, you're verbalizing something that was only up here, which means it's becoming more real. And there's something about doing it as a community, too. That you're not alone in this. That we're all together, in unison, saying this out loud. Which means you're all hearing me say this, and I'm hearing you saying it. And there's a sense that we're in it together. And that makes it more powerful in that community sense that we're all on board. And I think that there's, there's something to liturgy. Um, that the Catholics have. I do believe that liturgy, I do not like liturgy when it's the same thing every single week because you know if you say things too many times, then it becomes empty. Or the liturgy that everybody's reading it and they have no idea what they're even saying and what it means. But if liturgy is done well, if you're teaching them what it means and the liturgy is changing on a regular basis, there's something to standing up as a group and reading something in unison out loud. This is all, I'm all for loud music, but I think when the music at church gets so loud that you can't hear the other people in the church singing with you, you're losing that sense of community. You've sacrificed entertainment for, or you've sacrificed community coherency for entertainment. And so there's a time and place for loud music, but I don't believe it's in the church because you've got to hear the people around you singing. You've got to hear your, their voices. You need to know that you're not alone, that there's other people amening these words about who God is. And there becomes something powerful when you realize you're not alone, and the whole community is in this together. And then on top of that, if you really tr take the spiritual realm seriously, then it's almost like you're invoking the angelic power here. When you get to the book of Daniel, Daniel makes it very clear that your prayers do affect spiritual warfare. That what you say out loud and what you verbalize does determine outcome of wars between demons and angels. And so the reality is, when you're saying it out loud, so Jesus tells us the more you pray something, the more people are praying it together, and the more specific you are, the greater the outcome of the spiritual warfare. 
And so the reality is, as a whole community, you're all invoking this together, which means the metaphysical, angelic <laughs> realm is hearing this, and they're in it with you. And the, the word becomes powerful. Now, on top of that, you've also got this sense of community. And this is the other thing I think we've lost as Americans, because we've become so individualistic. There's a sense of accountability that is now happening. Now, in America, if you don't stick to these covenants, even if your church follows Paul and does church discipline and kicks you out of the church, the idea is you're kicked out of the community and there is no life outside the community. Life is depressing. You're on your own. And the idea is that being kicked out of the community is not judgment. The idea of kicking you out of the community is to get you to come back. And when you realize, wow, life is kind of miserable and lonely and crappy outside the community. I want to be a part of the community. Then you're like, that's worth it to me to change my life. And you do it. Today, church discipline is almost lost its power. Because if you did church, kick somebody out of the community, they just go down the street and join another church. Because our churches don't really communicate. I mean, with a few churches here and there, but not in the sense of like, let's get everybody in all of Franklin County on board with the fact that this person has been excommunicated for the purpose of restoration. That would never happen. And so the reality is there's something to when you are a people of God in an Eastern culture where community is everything and there is no life outside the community because that's how their entire thinking and culture is built. There's something to standing up and saying, we are going to do this. And in that sense, a benediction that a pastor gives or a blessing that you give over somebody, your children, or a liturgy, there, there becomes power in that, real power, on a psychological, mental, biological level, as well as a metaphysical, spiritual realm kind of a level. And if you've got an entire nation that's standing up on two hills, and they're yelling these things out for all the cultures around them and all the angelic realm to hear, and in the presence of God, they're acknowledging there's power to that. There's power to that. And so I know my first default is to think this is kind of like silly. But it, it's not. It's not. There's real power to that. And I would strongly encourage you to think about that even with your own families. There's something to, like, as a family, like saying things out loud, some kind of covenant, some kind of liturgy, as long as the words have meaning to the people that are saying it, as long as some of the same words over and over again that it's like, oh, this is just what we do all the time. And if you think it through and become intentional, there can be real power to that, to just have your kids or your family members saying things verbally out loud together as a family. And that's what God is having them do.